You are listening to the Antler VC Cast. We are your hosts. I am Yusti Salavara and I'm the co-founder and managing partner of Antler. I am Pooja Barwani, the marketing director of Antler. In this series, we feature stories of exceptional people who are playing a key role in building and shaping the next wave of tech and the way it is integrated into all we do. We take a look at the transformation that is taking place in an increasingly global and digital world. We will talk about innovation, building and scaling startups, mistakes they made, pivots they navigated through and lots more. We want to know their story, how they did it, the challenges they faced and how they overcame them. Stay tuned. Today we have with us Helen Wong, a partner at Chiming Venture Partners. Helen is a veteran in the VC industry and Chiming has made multiple investments globally. She was ranked among the top 100 VCs and top 25 female VCs in China in 2018 by Forbes. Helen has led investments into Akulaku, a new Southeast Asia finance platform, Jingling, a social e-commerce platform in China, and she was also involved in the investment into Alibaba. Welcome to the show, Helen. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Helen, how you been? It's been a while. I think it's months since we talked to each other. How you been coping with COVID? Yeah, I've been pretty fortunate. You know, I actually was out of China at the first uh, beginning of the outburst and in China and then I was back in China when everything was going a bit crazy overseas so I've been pretty shielded I have to say yeah right you're in China now yes i'm in shanghai okay okay nice nice yeah well, i think we're both in singapore with who i'm i'm personally had have the pleasure of being in quarantine so experiencing covid first time not don't have covid i mean but because of covid in in quarantine uh, due to travel right but hey let's dive uh, straight to it you know i think you would be someone who's in a unique position to look at the world with a certain type of global lens of course focused a bit on asia your company has uh, offices in the us in china in southeast asia so if we start from a bit the macro picture how do you see the the global scene and the lay of the land right now what's happening in in venture what is the investment uh, outlook look like and and so forth like what is kind of your macro perspective right now okay well so for chiming we are quite a diversified fund so we actually invest across different sectors so we invest in the consumer internet we also invest in enterprise software like saas and uh, ai and uh, we also invest in uh, healthcare so i would say that each subsector is going through different stages of uh, you know development right now um the consumer internet in china is pretty mature so we see selective um, opportunities in um, you know various segments enterprise software is uh, very popular right now especially software as a service and we had a wave of you know ai companies uh, over the last few years as companies try to adopt um, ai to make themselves more efficient and i think for the healthcare side of things uh, it has been pretty hot sector as well as with a growing population but also recently with covid leading to a lot of concerns about healthcare so i would say that yeah all the sectors that we've been looking at and i think globally as well have been a uh, very interesting sectors to watch okay interesting and covid like uh, i guess everyone's always going to ask this question from a vc but how, how is sort of 
COVID affecting your appetite to invest right now and, and how you look at different business models and, and companies? Sure. I think in the beginning, we just wanted to get a sense of where our portfolio is in the face of a co- the challenges from COVID. So I think in the beginning, it was really more about understanding who would be beneficiaries, who would be uh, negatively affected, how much runway, cash runway do they have? And if they need to raise financing, whether it's an internal round or, you know, where they can get external funding. So a lot of conversations around that, I think. But, but I think in China, you know, the COVID situation recovered really quickly. So uh, I would say that deal pace, we have not slowed down. In fact, certain sectors have become, because there's been US-China tensions leading to more import substitution and in areas of like semiconductors, for example. And also the local stock market has been pretty good for exits. So there has been wave of uh, investment activity in particular sectors. I think that for the internet sector, however, I think, you know, we are, yeah, we, we think it's not as crazy. I would say that consumer internet has evolved to a more mature stage. And I think in certain subsectors like e-commerce, actually Southeast Asia is probably, you know, leading the world in terms of growth right now. So while the rest of the world has, has seen acceleration in e-commerce, but Southeast Asia is really uh, leading the way right now, which is quite interesting. And has this, in a way, we, you said, you know, like the e-commerce is, is really rampant in Southeast Asia. Consumer behavior has changed. These are some of the trends that are happening. But has the measurement of good fundamentals in these sectors changed? And do the way you assess, you know, what to invest in, in terms of the startups or the sector, how do you look at that now? Yes, yes. I think definitely, I think over the years, you know, when there was a lot of hot money, people are more, investors are generally more focused on growth. But when there's more rationality around investing, I think people focus more on the fundamentals of the business model. So looking at more unit economics, looking at more the efficiency of the cash burn, looking at more like the, you know, renewal rates, if it's kind of a subscription business. So I think that there's definitely a more higher scrutiny on the business fundamentals uh, in this environment. And in terms of technology, people talk about certain, uh, like China has been ahead in the 5G race. Is this in a way the reason that it's been so advanced in AI? And can the rest of the world adapt now that with everything happening and we need technology to operate, to work, to progress, how much of that technology can the rest of the world adapt? I think, you know, there's a few trends, right? There's obviously there's big data, you know, enormous amount of data that has been created over the past few decades with the, you know, explosion of the internet. There is AI, which is, you know, the use of algorithms to make everything smarter, more automated. In a way, it's a black box, but it just makes certain good predictions that we don't even know how. And then um, there is like 5G, which you say, like, you know, so making communications more and more, more faster and which allows us to do a lot of different things like uh, autonomous driving, which is a combination of AI, I think, and uh, big data and 5G. And so I think the confluence of these trends definitely is very exciting. How would the world adapt? I, that's a big question. I see it as more of like companies uh, need to know how these trends are evolving and need to make the best use of them. So for example, you know, can you use AI if let's say you're an online entertainment platform? Can you use algorithms to make more uh, personalized recommendations uh, to your users? TikTok does a great job at that. And if you cannot, you know, will you lose, will you fall behind other, you know, like an e-commerce company that we're involved in, they use algorithms to actually 
automate everything from the management to suppliers to SKUs should be uploaded onto the website. So that kind of you know algorithmic use is also very helpful to make the operations very scalable. So I would encourage all companies to really make use of the these kind of advances in technology as much as they can. Yeah, that's pretty much a given. Like any horizontal advancement in technology should be pretty much like it should become like hygiene slash table stakes for kind of almost to startups across sectors so that they can make their operations more efficient, etc. So I think that's totally valid. I'm curious if you think about like innovative frontier type stuff, like what's the most exciting company you've seen recently? You want to you wanna throw a nugget of gold out there for people to uh, enjoy, like some things that gotten you really excited lately? Oh, we have so many. I don't know where <laughs> to start. Um, I mean, we have a, a You company, can pick three uh, if you want to. That's fine. <laughs> we have a company called InfoVision, which uses AI to uh, read like your CT scans. So in radiology, which makes like this, you know, this COVID situation makes it much faster for you to get like a quick diagnosis of whether you have a problem or not. We have a company called Rewrite that does autonomous driving and they have um, robo taxis running around in Guangzhou right now. So I think those are some that are definitely very interesting. And yeah, but I mean, for the consumer internet, you know, we don't have anything as high tech as that, but we see a big trend in live streaming, which I also think is very interesting. How is you have these star teachers and they can teach anything there you know about anything right now like we have a company doing personal finance and they're actually teaching people who have never like traded a stock don't know what stocks are and uh, just educating them about simple things like what is a stock what is a bond and people are willing to spend like a thousand dollars just to buy a course on it which you couldn't imagine maybe 10 years ago so I think all the advances, you know, the underlying infrastructure where there's live streaming, payments, et cetera, making a lot of services very uh, readily available. That's, that's all very exciting for me. And you said something about what you were saying about basically ed tech in a way that you have these very specialized, knowledgeable people giving courses online. Is this something in terms of, we do see this like globally masterclass and all this stuff. Is this something that's that wasn't usually popular in China or is it something surprising that's been taken on for people to pay that much to take course online? I would say that in the beginning, it was more like online education maybe started, I think, maybe 15 years ago. But in the beginning, it was more like recorded classes, right? Because you didn't have the bandwidth. So you just have a teacher, you know, standing in front of a camera and it was pretty like boring, right? But now you have live streaming has really changed the whole experience. So it's very interactive. It's like almost like us talking, right? What, what a teacher is explaining a concept, he or she is also looking at the screen at the comments coming in and saying, oh, okay, you didn't understand this. Let me explain it again. Or thank you very much for your encouragement or something, you know, like that. So it's, it's changed in that sense to be a very interactive process. So, and I think the willingness to pay is also has increased tremendously because in the past, it was very, very small microtransactions, right? That people were willing to pay online. But now, you know, you see that amount uh, going up pretty much every year. So I think that's very encouraging. Yeah. I think that's going to penetrate in a bunch of different verticals. If we still go back to the most obvious one in this context, which is like basic education, like the schooling system, etc. Do you think it's going to 
this whole virtual remote delivery is going to penetrate into kind of the basic schooling systems around the world. That's something I've been thinking about a lot, right? And pros and cons, but, you know, what's your view, Helen? Oh, yeah, definitely. I actually think after COVID that a lot of um, schools, a lot of parents would em- and students as well would embrace online education. There's key advantages, right? You have, um, for example, uh, uneven distribution of good teaching resources. Usually, in the, you know, you have the best teachers in the top cities. And now, you know, you can have a rural uh, child learn from a top-notch teacher in a top-tier city as long as the parents are willing and able to pay. Um, and also, you have a lot more tools at hand, right? So, for example, my seven-year-old daughter, <laughs> she does online learning uh, and she gets like, you know, a virtual trophy when she does a good job. And and I actually worry that what will happen offline <laughs> when she doesn't have this kind of uh, virtual points and encouragement, right? Um, so I, I think, uh, but I think it's great. And she has a lot more tools that keep her engaged. And because for younger children, you really need that to really get them just interested in learning, right? So I, I see a lot of good things for online education. Yeah, I think the gamification is super interesting and important there. Like, I've been worried about getting our sons to uh, have an eight and a 10 year old at the time, uh, you know, in the spring bit of trouble getting them to exercise enough and then suddenly one day noticed that they had walked 24 kilometers that day playing Pokemon Go. So like when playing that, you know, suddenly exercise is not an issue anymore. So, you know, if there's like an analogy to learning, that'd be pretty, pretty sweet, right? Yeah. I mean, similar to what Kahoot is has done and just gamifying and even my kids use Reflex and all these, these different apps to learn, but there's this whole reward system as well as kind of making them a bit of a hero in the whole process that really helps. Yeah. And I, I think, sorry, not to stop you there, but I think um, oh, also ahead. with this um, online coding, you know, where they can actually create a lot of things like a, a story or, you know, an animation and even a, a small game. I think that actually really helps um, them to be a lot more creative than previous generations. Correct. I want to ask you something. You've invested globally. You have met in your career so many founders. And I, what do you look for, uh, you know, when, especially now, has what the qualities you look for in the founders or the business model or the company changed over the years? If you could describe some of the key characteristics that you look at before making an investment decision, uh, what would they be? I think the fundamentals have not changed. Typically, I look for a founder whose past experience helps him to fulfill the current vision that he's working on. So I look at whether his understanding of the industry is is adequate and whether his uh, vision of you know this, this is, of of seeking out a problem and trying to solve it that solution makes sense. Um, so I think that's the first part, the vision part. And then the second part would be his uh, leadership qualities. So can he attract talents, um, manage very smart people, and can he retain his subordinates? Um, and is he willing to share? Like, uh, is he generous on the options, for example? And then the third part, I would say, is his ability to, to learn. Is he, can he adapt to changing environments? Can he, like, if he meets a challenge, can he, like, overcome it quickly? 
um, I think all those uh, are very, I would say these three attributes are very important for founders in, in any geography, uh, any sector. That's very interesting, actually, if I pick on one of them. Like, that seems to be quite a bit of a vote in favor of experience in a founder. If you want to have this 21-year-old student coding in their dorm room, like Mark Zuckerberg fantasy versus, you know, then an experienced founder, you don't need to, of course, make those ends of the spectrum, but your vote seems to go into the favor of the more experienced founder. Like, is that fair? And how important is that experience in your mind? Yeah, so I think it depends on the industry. So if, for example, we're trying to invest in a social networking company, then it can be a 21-year-old, right? But he's he knows his he knows his stuff. He knows like um, all the social networks right. and probably better, much better than me. And he's been avid user of them, right? And he sees something that I don't see, sees an opportunity, right? I think we, we found that in some of the tech companies, like the deep tech companies that we invest in, actually the founders uh, have tend to be quite young. So there, there's always like a, a young tech genius. Yeah, but uh, paired with like a more experienced manager, uh, that could be a very good, interesting combination in some of the deep tech uh, companies that we've found. But on the consumer internet side, especially in China, I think it's a much more mature market. So we're actually seeing like almost like third generation founders, you know, in a way. So people have maybe come up from BAT to another second tier startup and second tier tech company and then gone to start up his own company. So that that cycle has repeated itself a few times already. So it's harder for like uh, somebody who's 21 years old coming out to start something completely new. You're just not on the same you know, level playing field, right? But if it's something that you know, young people are more attuned to, then yeah, maybe getting the young people, young entrepreneur is better. There's, there's also, you know, China is so dynamic, right? There's right, sometimes right. there is like a break in the, how should I say, in the generation of uh, companies being formed. So for example, um, you know, because like social media is changing, the way like advertising used to work, the e-commerce platforms are also changing, you know, used to be like the distribution channels are also changing, right? Like you used to have distributors or maybe you go on Taobao, but today you can actually transact on TikTok, right? And quite sure at the short video platforms. So whenever you have these changes, then maybe the old generation that cannot adapt, those people are also not suitable for getting investment. So, yeah, so I, I think that sometimes, yeah, experience is helpful. Sometimes it's a hindrance, right? But we do look for what is your, what do you bring to the table that's different and helps you to have an edge over others? So that's very interesting. I mean, there's obviously some sort of a distribution there. I found there's like almost like the sweet spot bracket somewhere between like five to 10 years of professional experience. And obviously not to be looked at as a black and white, oh, anything above that is not going to fly. <laughs> you know, some people might look at it, uh, uh, you know, like that, but obviously I at least don't. Um, but, you know, you've had your brush with, with life, you have your some experience, but you're still not like fully hung up on certain ways of working. So uh, at least for me, that's been a relatively nice, like sweet spot range, right? Yeah, I think, you know, we used to have this saying here, like VCs born in the 70s, investing in entrepreneurs in the 80s, making money from the 90s generation. But now that the 90s are like, you know, almost 30 years old, <laughs> I think we're shifting our age uh, range for entrepreneurs as well. 
Hi, I'm Haruri Janaki Raman. I'm the Global Head of Technology at Antler. I'm here today to talk to you about Firetable, which we built recently. Firetable is an open source project that allows you to leverage the scalable infrastructure of any data store, such as Google Cloud's Firestore, and allows you to access this data in a very easy to use accessible manner like a spreadsheet. Now, the reason we built this is we saw a pattern of product development emerge where typically a developer builds on top of an app or a web app on top of a database. And at some point, this data needs to be accessible by non-technical users, such as operations and admin type of users. And at this point, the valuable engineering resource is pulled away from product development and to build internal data portals, which is not ideal. We saw this pattern in many of the startups, including Antler portfolio companies, and we also actually faced the same problem at Antler when we were developing our internal investment products. So we decided to build this and open source this so any startups across the world running into this problem can leverage this for free. Feel free to check out this project at firetable.io and we would love to connect and hear from you. You talk about age, but for someone like you who's, like I said, been exposed globally, are there any nuances in the cultural factors in terms of risk, uh, you know, based on where they're from, in terms of, you know, in Asia, failure is not very something that there's this face saving mentality, right? So, so in terms of that, entrepreneurship does require a certain amount of risk and grit for you to get into. And do you notice based on the cultural background of these entrepreneurs, the way they pitch, the way they create and the way they execute? Sure, sure. Yeah, there's a definitely a big difference. And when I was in Silicon Valley, I think it was very often you see highly experienced CEOs, right? And they might not be founders. And then they're happy with um, just an ESOP pool of maybe 20%. But when I came to China, it's very different. It's very founder-centric. Um, if Sometimes if the founder leaves, the company just, you know, dies, right? And Chinese uh, entrepreneurs tend to be very driven. They work 996 and um, they, um, how should I say, very... They persevere, like, you know, a lot of companies, they, they don't die after even like uh, 10, um, 10 years or so because just the founder just perseveres and puts his own money and keeps it going. Um, so I think that is really very indicative of how entrepreneur real the society is, right, in China. I think Southeast Asia, a bit different. I think Indonesia probably has more entrepreneurs than other countries. But I would say that in general, um, you know, you don't see the aggressiveness. Um, I think it's uh, it's slightly more laid back, and uh, you know, the maybe the work culture is also a little different. Um, I think uh, you know we just have to like adapt, right? And and sort of, um, um, and I think that in Southeast Asia, there's also tends to be a there's a tendency towards getting a like a multinational team, and you know, like different country managers in each country. In a way, it's like. Uh, sometimes I feel like the structure is more corporate than than like a startup, you know, where like in China, it's like you don't have like, you know, fancy titles and you don't have like people with like, how should I say, like VP or SVP or all that, you know, but just like maybe just a young person, like fresh grad, but they let you run with a certain new business unit. So I think that, yeah, that's, those are just, you know, nuances, uh, cultural differences. As I move between different environments, I can 
I can see these differences. And I think some of it has to do with, you know, the stage of development of the ecosystem. Some of it is just probably just, you know, culture. Yeah. It's certainly cool to be a VP in a startup these days, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe a bit of hubris there. Um, okay. I can't help myself, but ask, uh, and sorry, I don't want to throw a hot potato in your lap, but, um, since you mentioned, uh, TikTok earlier, like, uh, What's the what's your overall sense if you if you can comment on the whole U.S. versus China, um, especially vis-a-vis -vis TikTok and how things are going to develop there? Yeah, I I don't have any crystal ball. I I think that TikTok or ByteDance is just a very interesting company because they uh, just have built a great ecosystem of creators and able to distribute the content in such an efficient and automated way and that they're able to then move into different content formats, right? I mean, they, they're very strong and they started the news and then they moved to short videos and then they moved to, uh, they're not eating time spent on gaming and long form videos. I do see that uh, it is quite an interesting company. They're also making a move into education. So I just think that we love content entertainment companies, especially when they are user generated, provided, uh, providing user generated content. So we have an investment, actually a few in China as well as, uh, you know, in other parts of the world where they do create these kind of platforms. And hopefully these companies will, will all grow to be quite, quite big. So you're, yeah. but you're not worried about like this protectionism kind of raising its head big time and cutting legs from companies that want to go international or? Well, I think. <laughs> it's not something that entrepreneurs or VCs can have a lot of control. So we just have to roll with it, right? If one place is not welcoming us, Fair we enough. just go somewhere else and the world's big enough, <laughs> right? So I think that there's enough opportunities around the world. Yeah, it's, I guess it's also shifting opportunities. I um, It was, was the fastest growing company ever in India, if I remember correctly, was this TikTok clone right after they banned TikTok, right? So... Uh, there are going to be so many copycats in India now. So, <laughs> but, uh, And everywhere else. But speaking of TikTok, Alibaba, they're like the probably two big known Chinese companies that have managed to go international. What are your thoughts on the ability of Chinese companies to cross borders? Are they able to or is there just too much of a cultural and mindset gap, I would say? Yeah, it, it's a big topic. You know, I think that in some ways i think chinese companies are ready to go overseas they have uh, accumulated lots of experience in technology as well as in operations i think that in the, some ways chinese companies are even better at spaces that need like heavy operations you know so like e-commerce and it's a, it's a good example and uh, even something like you know yy or beagle right where you have some underground training of uh, these uh, streamers Chinese companies are very good at that. Um, but on the, on the other hand, I think Chinese companies, they, what they lack is, you know, they lack people who understand the uh, foreign cultures. Sometimes, they are, you know, especially when there is some merger and acquisition situations, they may not be able to manage foreign talent very well. So I think there is a, a, there's still going to be a time where, you know, there needs to be a lot of, um, how should I say, learnings from both sides, like the Chinese need to learn about, you know, foreign cultures. And as well as you have uh, maybe people who understand the Chinese way of doing things and uh, also like, you know, can bridge the gap, right, to help the Chinese companies operate in uh, other geographies. 
But another trend I think is very interesting is cross-border e-commerce. So we see, you know, companies like Shein and which is a fashion, uh, you know, fast fashion company uh, doing very well in the US, Europe, and even the Middle East, um, as well as like Anchor, which is a power charger company that's um, non-public on the A-shares. Um, so this is a, you know, company that has is selling very well overseas. So I think that, yeah, the supply chain in China is very advanced. And so it makes sense for some of these players to become global names. And I think that trend will continue. So I guess I feel like I, I must also ask you this, right? Given your specialties, like looking a bit more specifically at Southeast Asia, like social commerce keeps popping up everywhere now. I feel like every week I get some pitch on social commerce. In like you used to get the whole Uber for X or Tinder for Y, now it's like social commerce for Z. So um, do you think that model has like proper legs in in Southeast Asia, or is it is it like? Does it matter? Is it it's working in uh, China and it's working in India? So you know it's going to work everywhere. Yeah, it's interesting because you know social e-commerce in China is still evolving. So we have the early success of, of Pinduoduo on in group buying, and then we had the IPO of Yunji, uh, which is more agent model. But Yunji hasn't done so well in the public markets, and then we have other investments, including Qiming investments in Jingling, which is social e-commerce more as to B2C model, as well as in Shihuituan, which is more community-based group buying. And so there are like different variants of social e-commerce. I think what is interesting to Southeast Asia is that, you know, you have the similar trends of very um, huge, you know, social media usage and as well as, you know, you have high logistics costs. So it makes sense to do some community group buying to lower the logistics costs. And you have a lot of people that want to make money, right? Housewives or students or part-timers, especially in the time of COVID. So I think there are certain positive trends for social e-commerce. But it comes back to like, you know, how do you make things stick, right? How do you make the agents uh, loyal to your platform? I think it comes back to supply chain. It comes back to a lot of the day-to-day operations. So it's not an easy problem to solve. But I think um, people who solve it uh, can make it big. And is it worked in a way in China, this social e-commerce thing, because they're using a different business model? Like, is there something like a, I read about some of these models that, that happened there, you know, have you seen something that's really unique in the way they generate the revenue and bring on users? And like you said, you know, have loyal people on their platform. Yeah, I would say they're different sort of core uh, competencies that you need to build on, right? So like one of our companies, Shihui Tuan or, or Nice Tuan is the English name, they focus on fresh produce, right? So groceries and deliver it to these group leaders in a community. And then these group leaders would actually deliver the goods or, you know, their self-pickup. I think for them, you know, one of their strengths is the supply chain. So the founder used to be really involved with like uh, farmers and helping them to sell their produce. So uh, knowing that supply chain for fresh products is one of his key competencies. So he can actually, you know, manage the whole warehousing fulfillment in a, in a very low cost manner and the procurement, right? I think for Jingling, where other, our other company, they focus on fashion and especially the leftover inventory of brands. So a bit like VIP shop, if you know that model. So then that is the supply chain that they, they're very strong in. And they basically establish relationships with many, many friends. So it's hard for you know somebody to compete with them. 
And then I think the on the agent side, how do you keep them coming back to you? I think one of it has to be like this supply chain advantage that you have. But the other part maybe like, you know, do you have some SaaS, some tools to help these sellers manage their whole uh, selling more efficiently so that they can just focus on on doing the, you know, customer service and interaction with their friends and family, right? So I think things, things like that would be areas I would focus on. Yeah, it seems like there's like a whole ecosystem of collaborators, suppliers, users. So it's just a different model of getting customers and keeping it all alive. And it's it's pretty fascinating. It really makes you think, rethink retail, sales, e-commerce in a different ballgame. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We call it like a collaborative network. Yeah. yeah it's it, From a cultural point of view, being a European self, right? I mean... If a friend tried to sell me something, I, I'd be like horrified. Like, why are you trying to sell me shit, right? I mean, <laughs> you're you're just trying to make money off me. It's horrible, right? Whereas if you take more of a community-based culture, it makes so much sense, and there's so much synergies and benefits. So, I'm somehow a bit more skeptical in 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 other parts of the world, but uh, in Asia, made for Asia. Well, <laughs> I think you're right. I think I have not seen anybody try this model very successfully in the U.S. or in Europe. Yeah, yep. It boils down to trust. and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we don't trust each other in uh, the Western world. It's, uh, We're more skeptical. Arm's length, arm's length. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Helen, it's time for rapid fire. I have a few questions for you and we can't wait to hear what you have to say. So the first one is, if you could change one thing or event from the past, what would it be and why? That's a tough one for my, I assume it's related to my career, right? It can be either if you. (laughs) (laughs) If I could change one thing, I would say probably I would have come out earlier to China. I think, yeah, I was, I moved in 05, but I think, yeah, if maybe 03, 04 would have been pretty good as well. A lot of interesting uh, companies were founded then. Okay. And do you have something else? that you want to share that you think is relevant from another aspect of your life? (laughs) No, I think just maybe make it like more interesting. You know, like when I was uh, looking at Baidu, you know, as an investment, I mean, obviously I was an associate at that time. It was very early days in China and we could get access to the founders quite easily. But I think it was like internally, we didn't get the process together to, to make the investment. I think it, when I look back, it was such a big miss, right? But, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I mean, at, at that time, Google was still pretty big and was still making inroads into China. So it was not so clear that, you know, Baidu was going to be uh, such a big winner. But yeah, but I think, you know, that's always some, some regret that I look back. Uh, we didn't pull the trigger on that one. Okay. And... What keeps you going? Do you have a quote or a saying or anything that you live by in life? I don't know. Seize the day. <laughs> I, I don't really have something more profound. I think it's just like you have to make the most of what you, the opportunities that you're given and yeah, be grateful for the, all the blessings you have. Yeah, absolutely. No, that, that's a good one. What's the kindest thing someone has done for you? I think the kindest thing it was probably like, the teachers who gave me encouragement you know I think I still remember like in my primary school when my English teachers had 
told me that she felt I could get into the best school in Singapore. I still think that was, you know, a vote of confidence that I appreciate. And my high school teacher who believed in me when I tried to apply to Oxford, I think that was also uh, one of the kind of things somebody ever did for me. I think because of all my teachers, I got to the schools I wanted to go to, I got to excel in my studies. Yeah, because I mean, for me, you know, I came from a lower income family and nobody in my family went to university. So for me, it was like to get to the best schools, you know, on a, on a global level. I think that was a big breakthrough for me. That's impressive. I must ask, though, do you think that could have happened in a virtual setup with a remote teacher and uh, software? <laughs> sure, sure. I think connecting with people is beyond boundaries, right? I mean, and technology is just so great. I mean, I have to tell you a story about... But specifically the teacher encouragement part. I mean, like, I, I just feel like there's probably some value to the old school, pardon the pun, uh, way of doing school. Sure, sure. I mean, I agree with you. I think face-to-face is always better, right? But sometimes when that's not possible, then uh, technology has done a great job to bring us very close. But you had a story, so... Oh, yeah. No, I just had a story about this uh, Indian founder that invested in Pratilipi. And in the first few times I, I hadn't met, I didn't have the opportunity to meet the guy. So we just communicated on Zoom. But, but after like speaking to him a few times, I felt like we really knew the story and really knew him. And just flying to India to like, you know, make the investment happen was like the last checkbox uh, that we had to fill. But the, I mean, it's a purely online business, so it's a bit easier to get comfortable. But uh, mm. I think that technology has really come a long way to help us to make sure that we understand each other, just um, yeah, communicating over, over Zoom, for example. That's great. And I think one of the things that I do take away from what you said about your childhood is that educators are still champions in a way for children. Parents can do do a lot. Obviously, we're the first teachers, but educators, actually, I've heard this so much. And even for me personally, there've been a couple of teachers that have really made a big difference and had an impact in my life. But Helen, thank you so much for joining us and for that very heartfelt discussion on your experiences, both as a venture capitalist and as a person. Really happy to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Helen. You have been listening to the Antler VC cast with UC Salavera and me, Pooja Parwani. To know more about Antler, our portfolio companies and our philosophy, visit us at www.antler.co or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook at Antler Global. Thank you for listening.